Hello, and welcome to the latest Health on the Line. I just want to start by reminding you that Confed Expo is now only a week away. It's still possible to join over 5,000 other delegates in Manchester Central on the 14th and 15th of June. There are free delegate passes available for all NHS and wider public sector employees. Comfort Expo is set to be one of the biggest and most significant healthcare conferences in the UK, creating a really strong point of focus for health and care leaders and their teams to come together at a time of recovery and hopefully transformation. If you want to join us in Manchester, the Confed website has all the information you need. And also on the website, and through my Twitter feed at Confed Matthew, you can access a new blog I've written. In it, I explore the growth of care coordination in systems and places. I argue that this kind of practical collaboration may be the best way to instill new ways of working and to start the shift towards more community-based and preventative models of care. And while I'm on the subject of prevention, I hope you'll find the conversation I had recently with Dr. Ragib Ali, the Chief Medical Officer with the Our Future Health Project, as interesting as I did. Have a listen. New ideas. Big debates. Meeting the change makers. Transforming services. I'm Matthew Taylor, and this is Health on the Line, brought to you by the NHS Confederation. Well, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Ragib Ali, who is Chief Medical Officer and Joint Chief Investigator at Our Future Health. Dr. Ali is a clinical epidemiologist whose research is focused on the causes, prevention and treatment of diseases, including diabetes, heart disease and cancer. He's also a consultant in acute medicine at the Oxford University Hospital's NHS Trust. It's also worth saying that Dr. Ali was amongst those recognised in the 2022 Queen's Birthday Honours, receiving an OBE for his role during the COVID-19 pandemic. He was appointed as an independent expert advisor on COVID-19 ethnicity to the UK government in October 2020. And on four uh, occasions, he left his academic position to volunteer clinically during the pandemic. So, uh, Regine, welcome. Uh, How are you? Uh, good afternoon, Matthew. Fine, thank you. Thanks for having me on the on the podcast. So let, let's first of all just find out a bit about you and 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 how it is you've ended up with this focus, particularly on preventative health. What's the journey been to get you to the, to where you are now? It has been somewhat atypical because, as you mentioned, my clinical work is at the opposite end of the spectrum. So I work in A and E. As a consultant in acute medicine, as you said, during COVID, seeing mainly COVID patients. But early on in my medical training, it became apparent to me, and in many ways it's very obvious, that most of the patients I was seeing had conditions which have very long natural histories. And if we could detect those diseases earlier and intervene earlier, then they could be largely prevented or at least delayed until a later stage. Um, that's what really started my interest in, in public health and, and epidemiology and, and causation of disease. So I first met you just a, actually just a, a couple of weeks ago. I'd heard of you, obviously, but at a Times Health Commission. And you were there to talk to us about the Our Future Health Project. So, so tell us about that, uh, Rigib. It's a really exciting project. It's, uh, it's an amazing project in many ways, both in terms of its scale and, uh, and ambition. So what we're trying to do is to really change the way that 
healthcare is delivered in the UK from uh, the current model that we have, which is late stage um, treatment. So detecting disease late uh, when people already have symptoms and signs of disease or when they present with something like a heart attack or a stroke or a cancer that's already spread to a model whereby we're able to detect disease earlier, intervene earlier and prevent those diseases. And that's the, the overall aim of our future health. Um, in many ways, you could see it as a successor study to the first study that I worked on many years ago, which was UK Biobank. Um, so UK Biobank, which uh, many of the listeners will be familiar with, was a pioneering study about 15 years ago it, uh, it started, which was looking at how um, genetics and the environment contribute to the cause of common chronic diseases in the UK with 500,000 people. And that's taught us a lot about risk factors for disease. But what it didn't do was to allow individual level feedback to participants or volunteers in the study and see what action they could take themselves to prevent those diseases. So that's what we're trying to do with our future health now. So it's, as I said, kind of a successor study to UK Biobank. Uh, those who take part will have the opportunity to get individual level disease risk feedback in the future and thereby change the natural history of, of those diseases. And also to enable that, we are trying to recruit 5 million people um, because the UK has become, um, over the last you know few decades, a very multi-ethnic uh, society. So we're trying to get sufficient numbers of people from different ethnic backgrounds. We're also trying to make sure we have different we have enough people from different socioeconomic backgrounds and different parts of the UK, all parts of the UK, um, and to be able to look at all common chronic diseases. And that's why we need such a big number of, uh, of participants. Uh, and how many have you got to so far? So we started recruitment about eight months ago. Um, as of today, we have 500,000 people have signed up in, in eight months, which uh, we're very pleased about. And about 200,000 people have attended appointments where they give a blood sample primarily for DNA analysis and also have some physical measurements taken. And so we've, yeah, I mean, the, the scale of what we're trying to achieve is, is unprecedented, not just in the UK, but globally to try to recruit 5 million people into any study hasn't been done before. To do it in the time frame that we are trying to achieve, which within the next five years is also unprecedented. But uh, we've made uh, an encouraging start. But we're, we're very keen to to maintain the momentum and to have as many people as possible take part in the study. And before we go any further, because I don't want to forget this, just tell us quickly how people can sign up. So we tried to make it as easy as possible um, to sign up. So you just go to our website, ourfuturehealth.org.uk. Um, you will read about the study there. You consent online. Um, after reading the participant information sheet, uh, and then you would book an appointment to give a blood sample, have some basic physical measurements taken, including a blood pressure and a cholesterol, which are both important risk factors for, for heart disease um, and stroke, and also your weight, height and waist circumference, which are important risk factors for, for diabetes. And then uh, in the coming months and years, we'll be analysing all the data that we collect from the questionnaire that you complete online from the physical measurements and from the blood samples to give um, people uh, an accurate picture of their risk of, of common chronic diseases and also, as I said, to discover more about what causes those diseases in different groups across the UK. And I read in one report that you also ask patients for access to their uh, NHS records. Is that is that right? That is correct. I mean, what's unique about the UK in many ways is that we have such a large number of people in a, in a, in a single healthcare system. So the NHS is by far the largest single healthcare system um, of its type in the world. And the big advantage of that is that particularly for people that take part in this kind of study, one of the key challenges is to find out what happens to them in the future. Um, so what we call outcome ascertainment. So with linkage to health records, both hospital records, primary care, cancer um, and death records in the UK, we're able to get much higher 
um, proportion of the people that were able to follow up and find out what happens to them in the future. And uh, yeah, so the linkage to, to health records is really a critical part of our future health. So, so I mean, there's so many things about this that I find interesting, Ricky. But but one is that we've come to associate attempts to gather data from patients with with things going wrong, really, with public distrust. Uh, I mean, just in the last few days, there was a story about trusts accidentally giving information to Facebook, for example. Now, normally the response to that is to try to be ever more careful, but in some ways you've you've kind of leapt over to a different position because you're actually saying to patients, no, your, your, your data won't, I mean, as I understand it, your data will not be shared with anyone else, but we that is to say the study, the people running our future health, will look at the data and we will engage with you on a personal uh, uh, level. So in a sense, what I was thinking is, is, is the way you've designed this is that you're asking, in a way, you're asking for more from people because you're asking them not just to give you information but to interact. But you're offering them more as well. Is uh, You're not just saying to them, well, give us this data because it will help our general understanding, but give us this data because we can actually then help you. Exactly. So that really is the key difference between our future health and uh, many previous studies, including UK Biobank, um, that for the first time, by collecting this information, as you said, we're able to give individuals individual level um, feedback on the risk of common chronic diseases. And we take explicit consent from individuals to enable us to, to link to the health records. And in the future, what we'd like to do is also take consent to link to other records that the government um, and Office for National Statistics, for example, collect through the census and other administrative databases, which again are, are key risk factors for, for health outcomes. You know, the so-called social determinants of health are really very important uh, for all um, of the common chronic diseases um, as well. So again, the UK really is uniquely well-placed to do this kind of uh, research globally. And this is really a great opportunity for us to take the lead um, going forward for this personalised um, kind of prevention, uh, personalised or precision public health approach, uh, which hasn't really been tried anywhere uh, in the world. You see, I think that, that we too often forget when it comes to asking people to participate in research or offer their data that on one side of the ledger is people's concerns and worries, but on the other side is the potential benefits. And I think that we've been as guilty in the past of of, of underestimating the need to demonstrate to people that it's going to be of value to them as we have of underestimating their concerns about the risk, which is why I think you know the design of what you've done is really interesting. And exactly as you say, having a health service that people trust and uh, having a study the motives of which people trust, I think is really important. Now, you, you talked about the importance of having a representative sample. Uh, how's that? I mean, it's early days, but how's that going? Are there groups that you're having to work harder or will have to work harder to recruit? So what we know, and again, going back to our experience at UK Biobank, is that we do get lower response rates um, from certain kind of communities and, and sections of, of society. So UK Biobank, although it was very successful, did have relatively smaller numbers of people from ethnic minorities. Only 6% of the sample was from a non-white or non-European ancestry background. Uh, a relatively smaller proportion were from the most deprived kind of areas um, of the UK. And it was also relatively healthier than, than average. And that's a, a common problem with all studies of this type where you're relying on people to, to volunteer. What we've tried to do with our future health from the beginning is to 
really make it as easy as possible for for people from those underrepresented um, groups to take part. There's more that we are going to do going forward. But for example, you know, we have open clinics in areas that historically have been underrepresented in research, areas with the highest levels of deprivation, with the highest proportions of ethnic minorities and, and younger populations, all of which are, are generally under underrepresented. And we're keeping clinics open for longer in those areas, again, so that people have more opportunity to take part. Um, but going forward, there's a lot more we can do. I mean, one of the things that we learned from the COVID vaccine rollout um, was the importance of building trust um, in many of these communities um, where there are you know, valid and understandable reasons why they have less trust, for example, in the health system and in research in general. And that involves working with community groups, with religious organisations, um, with people on the ground to build that trust uh, over time. And that will be very important for us to make sure we get good response rates uh, amongst uh, all parts of society. Now, a concern that I've kind of developed, and perhaps you can put my anxieties to rest here, but it feels to me as though um, that we may be approaching a time where there's a kind of imbalance in terms of what it is that, that, that biomedicine is able to do. And what I mean by that is that there seems to be the possibility of some very major breakthroughs, um, well, there already are, but even more in diagnosis, that we might become more and more effective at diagnosis. But my worry is, what happens if treatment lags a long way behind uh, uh, that? Your study will contribute to to this in a sense. It will make, make us even better at being able to diagnose risks. But but do you do you are you concerned that we're going to end up in a situation where a lot more people know that they are ill or that they have got propensity to illness, but we won't necessarily be able to do that much about it? So it's a very valid question and concern, and it's definitely at the forefront of our minds as well to make sure that we're not just giving people information that cannot be acted upon um, because that's not good for them, um, neither their physical uh, nor mental health. So initially we will feedback information on disease where there are existing programs for them to be dealt with so for example diabetes and ischemic heart disease heart disease we have the existing nhs health check program for people aged 40 to 74 um, what the additional information will gather through our future health uh, will enable people to, as I said, to have more accurate information about their risk of disease and that can be dealt with when they go for their health check um, secondly for diseases like breast cancer um, where we have a screening program being able to identify women who are at high risk of breast cancer based on their genetic risks who currently are not identified and so are not part of the screening program. Um, that will have to be done you know, in close coordination with the NHS screening program as well. So the, the whole program is being done in partnership with the NHS, but its implementation, once the research phase is kind of over, its implementation within the NHS is is a key you know, challenge, uh, which we're very aware of. Um, the only other point I would make is for most diseases now, I mean, fortunately, things have moved on a lot over, even in the time that I've been practicing medicine, we have treatments for many more diseases um, than we had even 25 years ago. But there are some uh, diseases where we don't have treatments. And of course, we'd it, we would ask participants in advance, and there would have to be genetic counseling and other types of counseling available for them if they wanted to know about those types of diseases before we would feedback that uh, that information and i'm sorry to ask you a kind of well a question that is both technical and potentially just reveals my deep ignorance but if we talk about cancer you know often 
we hear statistics that say that if cancer is discovered earlier, then people obviously, you know, their chances improve. But to what extent is that simply a function of the fact that we've got it earlier, but actually it still pursues the course that it would have pursued, even if we'd only discovered it later? And to what extent is that because we actually help to cure it, the treatment actually makes a, a big difference? Can you just unravel that for me a bit? Particularly for cancer, we know for nearly every cancer that if you're able to detect it before it's spread, um, then the chance of cure is, is much higher. Uh, so a breast cancer that's detected on mammography, for example, and it's still confined to the breast before it has a chance to spread has a much higher um, cure rate than if it's spread either to local lymph nodes or other parts of, of the body. So, And that applies to, to pretty much every other cancer as well. There are also you know, ongoing trials, research studies to look at what we call circulating tumour cells. So even if you can't detect a cancer on a scan or um, a mammography, for example, you'll be able to detect it in, in a blood sample. Um, those studies are still going on, so we don't know exactly how effective they will be in improving prognosis. So I think your question is is very valid for, for many cancers where we don't have that uh, information, particularly on this, this newer technology. But what our future health will do partly because of its scale, but um, also um, because of the, as I said, within the NHS, is the opportunity to really do these research studies, you know, to do the trials that will enable us to understand and to answer that question. You know, does detecting a disease earlier and intervening earlier lead to a better outcome? Um, intuitively, of course, it should, but until you do the studies, particularly for some diseases where it hasn't been done before, you know, we won't know that for, for certain. Can we turn, Rigib, to to the issue of inequalities and health inequalities. Uh, and this was something that when you spoke to Times Health Commission, I noticed that um, Rachel Sylvester, who chairs it, and obviously a journalist, she was particularly interested in. You've you've had some kind of prof- some profile for what you've said about health inequalities. I think you've encouraged us to, to take a nuanced approach to understanding the nature of of health inequalities. Well, I mean, obviously, you've thought about this a lot, but what would you say are the most important things for us to understand when we talk about health inequalities? So, unfortunately, in the UK, we have extremely different outcomes um, for different people, depending particularly on where they live and their level of uh, deprivation. So, if you look at life expectancy, which is a very good measure of the overall um, kind of health of a community or an individual or a nation. Um, we have extremely good data in the UK looking at both life expectancy and, and healthy life expectancy, so how how long you spend not just alive but in, in good health. And the differences between, for example, Blackpool, which has the lowest life expectancy and lowest life, high health life expectancy in the UK compared to Westminster, um, which has the highest, is is more than 10 years for life expectancy and more than 20 years for healthy life expectancy. So these huge differences that we see and have been there for, for some time and really haven't decreased very much um, over over decades and it in some ways are getting worse now, that's really the biggest driver of, of health inequalities in the UK. As you alluded to, I've also, quite a lot of my research, for example, has been on ethnic inequalities, so how outcomes differ by ethnic group, and particularly for some ethnic groups in the UK who tend to be more deprived, so the Pakistani and Bangladeshi communities in particular, are the two most deprived groups um, in the UK. And there was some interesting, well, there's been quite a lot of uh, data now, um, which paradoxically has shown that Pakistanis and Bangladeshis, for example, have better outcomes than you'd expect. So their life expectancy 
is higher than um, than white, and it's higher than you'd expect based on their levels of, uh, of deprivation. And this is why, as you said, I think we do need to look at these inequalities in a more nuanced way to understand what's driving them. Um, so there, you know, why is it that someone in Blackpool has a ten-year lower life expectancy, not just in Westminster, but then Tower Hamlets, for example, which also used to be, you know, also a relatively deprived part of the country, um, but is predominantly now made up of ethnic minorities. Um, as opposed to um, Blackpool, which is predominantly white. And these are some of the questions which we haven't really had a chance to look at. And actually, our future health will help with this, because if we get adequate numbers of people from deprived backgrounds and from different ethnic minority groups, we'll be able to understand much better um, at an individual level what's driving those differences that we see at the at the group level. And it's it's important, isn't it, I'd have thought, to distinguish between, well, I guess it's three different domains of inequality. So one is, as it were, the propensity uh, to develop a disease, which I guess is largely genetic. And you might say, well, that's kind of what philosophers call luck inequality. It's not inequality based upon necessarily kind of structures of power or exploitation, but it's just that some people have more luck than others in terms of their genetic inheritance. And that would explain why it is that you know certain ethnic groups are more or less susceptible to particular diseases. Then you've got the social determinants, which which would be largely... Uh, explaining you know issues around poverty poor education which would 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 explain why people with a similar kind of genetic inheritance might end up with very different outcomes because of that social experience the anxieties and the pressures that come with poverty their lack of agency and self-confidence that comes with 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 poor education and then the third element is inequalities in terms of the way the health service itself approaches people the so-called inverse care law might be an example of that or just sheer you know uh, a racism for example do you, do you think it's i mean important for us and this is one of the things you hope our future health will help but as well to 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 disentangle these these different kind of sources of inequality and and and, and are those three broadly right or maybe there are others i'm not i'm not aware of no no that's a, that's a good summary of uh, the types of contributors um to different outcomes so genetic susceptibility to to disease is can be important particularly for um for some diseases although most of the differences we see between groups are not because of um, genetics um, but they are mainly because of differences in environment not just but including social determinants but also um the more kind of proximal things that we measure so tobacco use alcohol use um diet physical inactivity etc which are very much Linked to the social determinants and, and poverty and, uh, and deprivation, uh, unemployment, uh, etc. Um, and then access to healthcare, particularly in countries where you don't have a system like the NHS, that's very important um, in the US, especially in the UK. The differences are not as great as you see in the systems where they rely on uh, on health insurance. But there are, as you say, there are some differences in access to care, um, and they tend to you tend to have slightly worse access to care um, in areas where the need is, is highest, as you said, the so-called inverse scale. So they're definitely all the things that we'll be looking at within um, our future health. Um, the paradox, as I mentioned, really, for these two groups, Pakistanis and Bangladeshis, is, is that on many metrics, you'd expect them to have worse outcomes. They are poorer on average. They live in areas that um, historically have had lower life expectancy. They have higher rates of uh, unemployment, um, etc., um, but on a number of studies now have shown that they have lower overall mortality, particularly pre and post COVID. I mean, COVID was an exception. I'm happy to to explain why. Um, but uh, in terms of non-infectious diseases, uh, say cancers, uh, particularly, 
Um, they tend to have lower risks and it's not fitting with the general pattern we see of deprivation leading to much lower life expectancy and, and much, much worse outcomes. So that 10-year gap that I mentioned earlier between the most and least deprived of life expectancy, we really don't see that um, for Pakistanis and Bangladeshis. Um, and this is something which we really need to investigate further because it could indicate the potential prevention in, uh, in other groups as well. So I've I've heard your explanation for COVID, and I think it's primarily, isn't it, about people living in large households uh, was the factor which led to a higher death rate uh, amongst those communities that, that, that do tend to live in larger households. D- tell me if I'm right about that. But also I'm interested, Raghib, do you think there are there are factors which we have systematically underestimated that we'll find out more about? I mean, for example, a lot of people talk about loneliness and social isolation as being significant factors. Now, one tends to assume that's in terms of mental health, but of course, mental health and physical health are, are entwined. So do you have a sense that there are significant factors which we might have underplayed or, or not seen? I think that's a, a very important point, actually. So with COVID, it was partly the size of household, but what was particularly different in the Pakistani and the Bangladeshi community is that people over the age of 60 in those two communities were much, much, much more likely to live with their children and grandchildren. You gave a remarkable statistic. I think you, say thir- I thought, I think I remember you saying it was th- they were 35, 32, 35, 35 times more likely to live with their children. I mean, it was children remarkable And, and grandchildren, yes. And uh, in general, that's quite good for a, an older person's health, you know, having that family contact, having that support, um, being able to go with somebody to the hospital or to the GP. And I see this as a doctor in hospital as well. You know, the support that these communities in particular um, have from their families is is much higher than I've seen with other communities. So they benefit a lot from not having that loneliness. As you said, there is evidence that loneliness is bad both for your mental health and physical health. And some studies show it may even decrease uh, life expectancy, uh, even to the simple level that if you have a heart attack or a stroke um, or collapse at home, for example, and you're on your own, then your prognosis is worse than if you have somebody with you who can take you to the hospital um, quickly. Um, so even as simple as that, you know, being on your own is is harmful. But in, in general, the amount of contact that many older people have in this country is, is quite low. Um, and I don't remember all the statistics to hand, but uh, there are, you know, a proportion of elderly people who live on their own who have very little contact with the outside world with relatives or, or friends um, and that is I'm I think we will see in the coming months and years and through studies like our future health the detrimental impact that's having on people's health um, and because if we get sufficient numbers of people from from these other communities it will be easier for us to, to make those comparisons to see how important that family support and that social network um, support is um, to outcomes yeah that'd be fascinating to see now I mean Raghib you've been tolerant enough to hear me suggest one kind of classification let, let me just try another one on you and i'm just really interested to see what we think of this that i've been to lots of meetings talking about prevention and i got to the point of, of getting frustrated about the fact that we talk about all sorts of different things as prevention and we mean very different things and the reason it frustrated me is not just because i i'm kind of a nerd you know when a conceptual nerd but but because Actually, it seems to me that the barriers to action are very different from one domain to another. So let me very briefly run this past you. So the first area I would call medical prevention. And what I mean by that is simply really good clinical practice. And we ought to be encouraging all clinicians to try to find ways of intervening earlier and earlier um, and therefore reducing the the, the harms that people uh, 
suffer now. Easy to say, but hard to do. But that's really what we should be. Should we? What medicine is is seeking to achieve? The second area I would call environmental, and what I mean by that is those things in the environment beyond the individual's control. Might be air quality, might be infectious diseases, um, might be the number of chip shops in your locality or whatever it might be but in those those kind of broadly we broadly often refer to this as kind of domain of public health but i prefer to call it environmental because they are things beyond the individual's control that influence health the third area and and the third area is what i would call public and what i mean by public is these are the areas where the critical thing is encouraging the public to do something whether that's to on the one hand improve their lifestyle or on the other hand, to take advantage, and this will be an ever bigger factor, of the possibilities of diagnostic tests or whatever, which enable them to understand their risks and, and act on that. And then the fourth one I'd refer to as social prevention. And here what we're trying to do is to convince people for whom health is not their number one priority to take health seriously. So this might be housing associations, or it might be schools, or it might be people who set welfare policies, or employers. We're encouraging them to think about health. Now, the reason I kind of latched onto this framework, Regib, was because the, the challenges in the first area around kind of clinical engagement, the challenges in the second area about regulation and investment, the challenges in the third area about how you build the trust of the public, how you engage with the public, how you inform the public, and the challenges in the fourth area is really about working in partnership with other organisations so that they take our health seriously. All it seems to me quite different kinds of of challenges. Now, I know I've just sprung this on you, Ricky, but I wonder what you think of it. <laughs> Yeah, it's a very good summary of, of the challenges and uh, why in many ways it's been quite difficult to reverse some of the trends that uh, I discussed earlier. Um, I mean, they're all important and they're all complementary. Uh, in terms of what will give you the biggest impact on these inequalities that we see, I think it's clear um, that the you know the social aspects and uh, deprivation, poverty, etc., and that's what is driving the biggest um, differences, more so than the other the three things that um, that you described. Where they're all linked, I think there's pretty good evidence that what doctors do and what the health service does, in many ways, will have the, <laughs> the least impact on those big inequalities. Uh, which, you know, speaking as a doctor, is in uh, um, some ways uh, counterintuitive, but it's it's true. I mean, that's what all the evidence um, would suggest that we do have a role, um, but it's not going to be the the main factor in, in reducing those um, inequalities. So, yeah, I mean, they're all they're, they all need addressing. They're they're all complementary. Our future health is is a part of that, um, but I would be the first to acknowledge that it's only a part of uh, addressing the prevention kind of challenge that we face. And if government and the NHS and other parts of society don't all work on those other parts of you know prevention then then our future will have uh, much less impact than if we can coordinate with that term together so just a final question Ricky, because we're running out of time but i think there are reasons for hope and, and let, let me explain why i mean you know things are tough in the health service and there's some really big financial problems coming our way this year but on, on the one hand we have seen recently a much greater understanding of the economic impact of poor health and you know the 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 effect on inflation for example of hundreds of thousands of people millions of people not working because they're ill or because they're looking after people who are ill and also we've seen the creation of integrated care systems where there is an explicit 
commitment to focusing not just on what the health service does, but on health outcomes, on health inequality, the wider role of the health service. So I wonder, do you share with me the sense that if we can if we can pull our, our, our gaze up a little bit from the incredibly difficult day-to-day challenges we've got, this wider understanding that if we want to address health, it's not just about the NHS, but it's about thinking about, you know, to put it in the terms that Keir Starmer put it, and he's not the first to say this at all, but we need a kind of health mission across the whole of government and society, not just policies for the health service. I would definitely agree with that. Um, this goes back to my, my previous answer in many ways. I mean, people estimate that 80% of what uh, influences health outcomes is outside of the health system and the NHS and only 20% is within within it. So we certainly do need, a cross, not just across government, but I would say across society, effort to improve health generally and to reduce inequalities. But like you, I'm also optimistic. I mean, we are facing... You know, tough times, particularly in uh, well, both primary and, and secondary, and every part of the NHS. Um, but the I am seeing from both parties, um, you know, an emphasis on looking longer term and thinking about how we do change our model from a national sickness service, uh, you know, to a national health service. The importance of uh, of prevention. And that's very encouraging. I think the political system and cycle in some ways doesn't encourage that kind of long-term thinking. But the fact that you know, even a study like Our Future Health being set up and funded, you know, which it might take you know, 10, 15, 20 years to really see the fruits of this study, it does show that um, commitment to the longer-term way of thinking. So I would agree with you. We should be optimistic uh, about the longer-term prospects um, for improving health and decreasing inequalities um, in the UK. Well, governments are always better at the long term after the election. So... We need an early election, regardless of what we want the outcome to be, just because get the election out of the way, we'll get a bit more long-term thinking. Look, Ricky, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm off to sign up to our future health. Thank you. Thanks, Matthew. You've been listening to Health on the Line from the NHS Confederation. Visit nhsconfed.org for more information about us and to register for events and webinars that delve deeper into the issues explored in this podcast.